Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm uh, very glad to be here again. Still still not feeling much better than I was last week, but uh, considerably improved in frame of mind at the prospect of discussing some interesting Bible verses with some good friends. My name's Cameron, I'm talking to you from Launceston in Tasmania. Uh, g'day everybody, Ken here. And Luke here. And I'm Lachlan. Right, this, the Sabbath School lesson this week refers to Sabbath keeping in, in a context that... Uh, We've actually devoted a, f- a fair amount of airtime to the, the context of Sabbath being a mechanism by which we c- can become agents of blessing to those around us. So uh, it's fantastic. It's also something we've spoken about a little bit. So uh, as with our custom, we're going to uh, meander through the themes outlined in the lesson, but we'll be drawing from some different Bible passages and, and hopefully looking for some novel and interesting perspectives. And... Uh, and this concept of, of looking out for those who are poor and needy is, is spelled out fairly explicitly in the Sabbath commandment. Luke, do you want to kick us off uh, with the commandment recorded in... A, are you picking, is it Leviticus or Deuteronomy? I was going with Exodus. Sorry. In fact. Well, that displays my ignorance. Exodus, Exodus or Deuteronomy. Mm. Yeah, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So far so well memorized six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall not do any work neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns for in six days the lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them but he rested on the seventh day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and made it holy luke i'm i'm gonna chip chip in a bit there with the Deuteronomy version. The Deuteronomy version is, if anything, a bit more explicit. I think yours only referred to animals. Is that true? Animals and foreigners and so Okay, well, in Deuteronomy it says, um, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle. So it actually enumerates the animals. And then it says, uh, nor your foreigners, um, not your son, nor your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, your ox, donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor any stranger who is within your gates, your male servant and your female servant. So it, it uh, goes to the effort of distinguishing, the, the, of pointing out that the commandment applies to both genders. Hmm. Hmm. It, it is what um, in the, the modern uh, development terminology would be a gender inclusive commandment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, or a gender-sensitive commandment. It, it's also uh, uh, diver- It's inclusive on so many axes, right, isn't it? It's inclusive across socioeconomic and mm-hmm. um, kind of social position. It's, <coughs> it's inclusive across... We don't have this quite so deeply embedded in Australian culture, but lots of countries still do. Um, class structure. Um, it's... It's remarkable. And Look, not only is it kind of remarkable, but it is a bit unique, isn't it? The, the rest of the Ten Commandments don't get this treatment. Yeah, like, I, I'm not f- super familiar with this term, and I understand it's sometimes used in a pejorative sense, but would I be right to say that this is a woke commandment? Oh, <laughs> it, it sounds pretty woke to me. Yeah. Um, certainly trying hard. It's part of this commandment that we don't emphasise very much, isn't it? There's a lot of talk about the first bit, and there's a lot of talk about the last part of the, the the Exodus version of it, where the six days of work and the seventh day of resting. A lot of talk about the holiness. Not much 
was just saying, sorry, Luke, uh, to interrupt. In Deuteronomy, it doesn't talk about creation. No, mm. no, it doesn't. The commandment, of, that's right, the commandment quite significantly appears there without that part that yeah, it does it, have in Exodus. It appeals back to, in Deuteronomy, it actually appeals to the Exodus event. It says, remember it, because you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. Mm. Yeah. But it, it is, it's very interesting that in both versions, the inclusivity of it, the inclusiveness of it, is present. Mm. So that, that, to me, suggests that it's a key component of this law. If, if there was somebody who was resting faithfully themselves on the Sabbath, however you might define rest, um, but was making their servants work, or their employees work, could we say? Is that the modern version of servant? <laughs> um, they would not be keeping the Sabbath. I think I am a servant, Luke. I think that's a good description. Um, uh, I think that most people in most workplaces are servants of something or other. That's the uh, classical legal terminology for an employee. Um, uh, one talks about uh, a an employer's servants or agents. Uh, so an employee is synonymous with a servant, at least uh, in 19th century and 18th century language. Right. We we would broadly class this dimension of Sabbath keeping as as being concerned with social justice. And social justice is a term uh, that that we use a lot. Uh, I want to start now with the discussion, if we can. Uh, What... uh, what distinguishes concepts of social justice from concepts of justice? What, why the extra term? What does the word social uh, add to the term? I, I think it's uh, pro- properly understood. Um, all justice is social justice because we are social creatures uh, and justice deals with questions of fairness uh, between uh, people. So in, in that sense, it's all social. Uh, but I think it's usually used uh, to talk about uh, social structures uh, and ensuring justice in social structures, uh, eco- economics and the like, ensuring justice of fairness, if you like, um, in the way that, um, sorry, ensuring fairness as it is lived and experienced in society. Uh, as opposed to something that is purely uh, conceptual or associated with uh, the criminal law or the civil law. I was going to say something a bit similar, Ken. The The word that was on my tongue was sis- social justice is like systemic justice. It's, it's seeking for justice within the, mm. of systems. Uh, if you like, the way we conventionally describe the justice system with, with law courts and fines and police and, and jails and prisons, the, the standard sort of childhood picture of cops and robbers, um, that, that is where the perpetrator can be identified. And in so many instances of the sorts of issues, poverty um, and, and you know, inequality of opportunity and... Um, I mean, even even issues relating to the the universality of access across gender or sexual orientation or ethnicity. In so many of these cases, the it's not easy to identify a perpetrator and haul them into the dock and call them before the judge. Right? It's 
the thing that is that has caused the harm is actually in some sense the system itself i actually think if if this is true this is part of the reason why social justice as a term in some circles gets gets quite readily dismissed and and even even rejected as a sort of idea or as a term it's because of this vagueness it's hard to try and think about ideas of justice when it's not possible to point the finger at who made the mistake well I can actually make it a bit easier to define it, perhaps. Um, I think you can do it in three words reasonably well, which is to say a level playing field, <laughs> hyphenating playing field there. <laughs> Didn't count the <laughs> words before I said word. it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, a level playing field. Is, is what it is. But look, I think the implication of what you're saying there is really, really significant. What you're essentially saying is that sometimes injustice is not illegal. Because if it was illegal, then you could take people into the courts and deal with them through the quote-unquote justice system. Yeah. That's what a justice system's for. In, uh, in When I was at college and I did a, a subject on drama, we studied Medea by Euripides, an ancient Greek playwright and that Medea is a story about uh, Medea is married to Jason from Jason and the Golden Fleece I think who's just decided Jason and the and she, she's yes. she's a, a foreigner and she is living in a foreign town and her husband's just decided to leave her and go marry someone else and um, <clears throat> she works to exact her revenge part of her revenge is is killing herself and her kids um, which is not so good uh, but the the part of the play um, that's surprising is where the gods intervene at the end, which is a very common thing for, to happen in, in a Greek tragedy. The gods make an appearance and pronounce a judgment. And they, they decide in favour of Medea because she was without any reasonable options. So society, society had not... Um, so the play is intended to be provocative, um, Mm. You know, it was provocative at the time and it's provocative now. But the, the point that was being made in it is uh, societal structures can, can you know, if, if society says, yes, it's okay for Jason to marry this foreign woman, foreign woman, bring her away from her family, have two kids, and then say, do you know what, I've had enough. I'm heading off. And if society condones that and she is then left vulnerable um, and unable to fend for herself, that is an injustice. Yeah. Yeah, pretty, pretty uh, hard to disagree with that. We're talking about social justice, one and and Lachlan. I want to pick up on one of the points that that you raised, and that is that social justice is sometimes um, uh, criticised, or the terms criticised, or the concept is is criticised. Uh, I, I observe that sometimes, uh, not always, of course, but sometimes that criticism comes from those uh, who benefit from uh, the system as it is, uh, and so. Perhaps when we're looking to criticise social justice, we ought to be looking very carefully at ourselves and uh, what we stand to benefit by the maintenance of the status quo rather than uh, a change that would uh, lead to somebody else um, having uh, more benefit. Um, mm. But I wanted to bring this back to Proverbs because uh, that's where we are and remembering that the uh, system of government at the time uh, that the Proverbs were written, uh, indeed, uh, the government was uh, the author of the Proverbs, 
um, and and take us back to Proverbs 29 and verse 4, uh, which in the New International Version says this, By justice, a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. Uh, so uh, fairness in government is important for social stability. Um, but those who seek to gain advantage for themselves as a result of their position undermine the well-being is, of society. This is really what's pulled out in the Sabbath commandment, is that there is one day a week where you must consider the welfare of those around you. You just have to do it by divine decree. Um, you have to look out for, for those, for interests of other people. Um, and... Uh, what was the first part of that proverb, Ken, the, the, about the justice and the ruler? By justice, a king gives a country stability. Yeah, well, I would imagine that if there is a country where, where workers were looked after well, where the vulnerable, the poor, the widows, the foreigners uh, were cared for, it would, it would bring stability. I mean, I know that last, that last week we said that the Sabbath ought not be think of, thought of as merely utilitarian, uh, but there is a lot of utility to it, even political utility, mm. um, to to being treating people fairly so that society can function well. Mm. A, a similar theme comes out in uh, Proverbs 17 and verse 23. A wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the course of justice. Um, one of uh. the things that I often refer to and have to refer to in sentencing uh, people uh, is... Uh, the effect that their conduct has on the administration of justice. So often people get disqualified for uh, driving while they've exceeded the prescribed alcohol limit or with illicit drugs in their uh, oral fluid or blood. And um, and then for some reason, there's always some really good excuse. Um, uh, they uh, uh, drive during the period of disqualification, having been ordered by the court not to. Uh, and... Uh, Sometimes it might be viewed as a bit of an incantation, uh, but there is real substance, I think, to the words uh, that follow the general effect of um, uh, court orders must be obeyed. If you're not adequately punished for disobeying a court order, then people will think they can ignore them and more and order will break down in society. Um, hmm. So uh, the administration of justice is a very important um, uh, aspect and the fair administration of justice, if I can call it that, to use the word justice twice, really. Um, uh, another one is where people seek to pervert the course of justice. There is an actual charge for perverting the course of justice. And one way that often arises is, again, in driving, where uh, somebody uh, chooses to take the blame for somebody else's driving or uh, lays the blame on somebody else uh, for, for their driving. Indeed, I had a matter involving that today um, <laughs> and uh, uh, again the, the words are used this strikes at the heart of the administration of justice um, so there's dis dishonesty there that, um, that that affects the ability um, of the government to treat people fairly there's another way though can that people pervert justice and yes um, and um, I'm gonna have to resort to uh, Umberto Eco. 
Um, <laughs> and Birdo yeah, Hickory. Are, are you looking at his library or his anti-library? I'm looking at his... Um, <laughs> uh, I can't find it in front of me. Luke, you, you will have it. It's How to Travel with a Salmon. Um, and one of the essays is How to Get Through Customs. And the essay is fairly jocular. Like the whole book of essays are, are, are humorous essays, not serious. But one essay starts with the description of how um, uh, a, a, a fictitious description, presumably, of how um, he was fed up one day with his mistress, so he did her in and chopped her body up into five parts and put it in a suitcase and caught a first-class ticket to um, to some international port and, uh, with the aim of leaving this this corpse on a, on a station platform somewhere. He said, I had no qualms because I was wearing a suit and travelling first class. And uh, sure enough, when I got to customs, they just waved me through. Um, he said, on the return trip, I ill-advisedly wore a T-shirt and I was immediately singled out and strip-searched and accused of, of you know, political terrorism. And um, it's, it's very humorously told. Uh, <laughs> So his advice for getting through customs to wear a suit. But we're, we're all guilty of that sort of injustice all the time, treating different people mm. differently based on, on how they look and how they behave, mm. what connections you have. Well, on that, on that, I remember being, this is now a few months ago, but I was absolutely um, confronted in a way, I was startled, to read earlier this year, I think it was, of a, a rule adjustment that was made in the New Zealand Parliament to to essentially make it possible for male parliamentarians not to have to wear a tie and it was in response to a maori member of parliament giving a fairly robust speech in which he uh, at one point described the necktie as the noose of colonial oppression which i think is a fantastic description for it and it's one that i'm, I'm using storing that to next use time on any other occasions i'm required to wear a tie somewhere but the the story i mean it's a great it's a great line the the noose of a colonial oppression but the story was was actually quite quite dark in a sense i think this this particular member of parliament his grandfather i think the story was his grandfather was lynched either by the police or by a mob um and so talking about the nooses of colonial oppression was was pretty raw in that context but essentially the 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 reason that it confronted me was that i sat there and i thought hang on a minute what we call professional attire, you know, who who got to declare that to be professional? You know, why is it that a grass skirt is not professional attire for men and members of, you know, in Parliament? Um, and it's, it, it really does, you know, it's, uh, the more I started to think about it, the more I started to realise it's that kind of thing. It's that kind of thing that I mean when I talk about the, the systems that are in place. I'd never even, I, you know, at school I didn't enjoy wearing a tile that much, but I but I was, I was quite happy to wear the blazer. I didn't mind dressing up a little bit and sort of, okay, this is what you do. This is how it happens. I'm lucky that I work in a workplace. University academics are not very frequently required to wear, uh, to meet any sort of dress code whatsoever. Um, mathematics professors, least of all, in yeah. my experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, Locke, do you remember Anton when um, he got married? So Lachlan and I were lucky enough to have a Sri Lankan gentleman by the name of Anton, teaches uh, maths at Avondale, and he's a fantastic maths teacher. And um, when he got married, he and his wife swapped cultures. So um, he wore a suit, and uh, she wore red. Ah, <laughs> that's a cool way to do it. I yeah. like it. So, but there, there is this that subtle, um, subtle injustices that we enact every day. 
based on people's status and we subconsciously um you know and it's um we all have biases that we don't realize that we have uh and Mm. um the biases come to us very subtly now um uh there's a conversation i had with oliver when he was about three and um i'm very glad there was no one else in the car because they would have attributed these points of view to me um they would have said oh well he's picked that up from his dad in point of fact i'm I'm quite certain i know that he can't have because i don't hold the views and i think he had just reasoned something from his own perspective he'd grown up in a home that my second son and oliver are fairly close in age so um so mel was out of the workforce looking after the kids and um and uh and Oliver's experience had been for three years that mum was at home and dad was working. And we were passing a roadworks people, like people doing roadworks. And I happened to notice that one of the ladies driving one of the um, steamroller compactor things, one of the workers was female. And I thought, well, this is going to be a really important thing to point out to Oliver and to explain to him that, you know, girls can drive diggers too. So I said, oh, Oliver, look, one of those... Uh, digger drivers is a lady and he said she should be at home (laughs) (laughs) and I thought oh goodness gracious me what do I do with that Um, so that was I was very glad that that no one else was there but but he he um, and now you've shared it with all of our listeners, Ken. So I know. Uh, they can enjoy life. They can all but judge my, you for it. <laughs> no, my kids have also said when they're very young and and not sort of like very young, just learning to talk. Um, uh, they've also said um, things about people with dark skin that would not go down well because the human mind is just so wired towards stereotype, and and you know. And one of the great things is when you send them to school and they can make friends with people from different cultures. And that's mm. such an important part of education. But but we are just wired to notice difference. And we attribute mm. to difference value. We attribute value to it. And we we feel comfortable around people that look like us. And, and one of the things that we notice is uh, social status and socioeconomic status. It's something, it's something that yep. we just tune into... And one of the things that the Sabbath commandment says is there's a day a week where you have to consciously tune that out. You have to yeah. have to work really deliberately to to say, no, you are all equal. And in fact, God God cares as much on the Sabbath about your donkey as he does for you. So make sure everyone has a rest. Here's an interesting mm. thought to follow that on, Cam. What do you call something that you do on a regular basis? Call it a, a habit. You can call it a habit. A tradition. Uh, what a tradition? What about it's something that you make yourself do on a regular basis? A discipline. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're not getting the words, are we, Luke? <laughs> oh no, they're all good. They're all good words. But you're getting you're getting closer to the one I'm thinking of, which is practice. Ah, uh, practice. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, and when you practice something, you get better at it. Yeah. Regular, you know, anybody who has had to learn a musical instrument or master a skill or do any any sort of learning, we know that the way to do it is regular practice. And what the Sabbath strikes me at in this sense that, that you're talking about, Cam, is that it is it is regular practice at treating people f- fairly and equally. Yeah, I like that. 
if I can correct you on only one detail, Luke, you said that's what the Sabbath is. Might I suggest that it it's probably better to say it's what the Sabbath should be. I was I was talking in the uh, the ideal sense, the concept of the Sabbath as written in Exodus and Leviticus. But I, I, yes, yeah, I mean, that I is exactly, exactly what right. it should be. Even in Proverbs twenty nine, where Ken uh, took us with verse seven, uh, sorry, verse four. If you go to verse seven, yeah, the godly care about the rights of the poor, the wicked don't care at all. And then you follow that. The theme seems to come out again and again. Down at verse fourteen of Proverbs twenty nine picking up on the idea of rulers and government again. If a king judges the poor fairly, his throne will last forever. Um, I think what behooves a king in that particular verse is perhaps also uh, easily recognisable as being the the sort of attitude that we're all called to, especially through the Sabbath. Uh, you know, we were just five minutes ago chatting about the the concept of fairness and how unfair some of our prejudices are. Um so, and it doesn't it's, it's apply central it, here. It doesn't apply just to kings. Uh, it certainly does, and I think it's interesting that these proverbs are proverbs by Solomon, uh, a king, uh, said to be the the wisest. Um, uh, of course, the second wisest person ever to have walked the earth. Um, uh, but uh, he so clearly applies to kings. But in verse thirteen of chapter twenty one, it says, "If a man." shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Uh, so um, uh, it applies to everybody, uh, opening your ears to the poor, um, justice mm. justice for all. Um, interesting, interesting that uh, mutuality that's involved in opening our ears and having our requests answered. Um, uh, if you like, the symmetry that's involved in that. Yeah, I'm a bit like to... Jesus' standard of, uh, you know, don't by the standard with which you are judged, you what's well, by the standard with which you judge, you will be you, judged. You will be judged. Mm. The Lewis... parable of the servants with debts. Mm. C.S. Lewis said the most terrifying verse in the Bible was the Lord's part of the Lord's prayer where it said, "Forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us." Mm-hmm. Um, that the um. I've been trying to think while we've been talking about what sort of social groups uh, would occupy the same place in today's society as as what would refer to as the slaves and the servants. Because... uh, Yeah, or in Proverbs, it's often the poor. Um, So I was just picking that up here. In Proverbs, that category that is assumed to be despised, uh, the poor. So you're right, Cam. This is a great question. Well, and and at, at face value, we don't have slaves and servants, although apparently um, it was not illegal. It was first made illegal to own a slave in the UK in the year 2010. It was, <laughs> it was illegal to buy and sell slaves a lot, hundreds of years before that, but, but uh, in terms of actually owning one, um, they only sort of noticed a legal loophole and, and plugged it in in 2010. So... Any of our listeners wishing to own a slave missed out. Um. Also, there's well, no, they didn't really, um, because there is such a thing as modern slavery. Well, this is which this is, which is is slavery in all but technicalities. You don't technically own someone, but you may as well, and it's a, it's a major issue that um, uh, a lot of NGOs do work. Um, to, to combat because it's it's an insidious thing. There's millions of slaves in the world today. 
Yeah. Um, don't quote me on this because I'm not speaking from um, specific knowledge, but I'm fairly sure that I read in a recent piece that there are actually more slaves alive in the world today than there ever have been yeah. at any one point in human history previously. One of the most prominent organisations involved in um, trying to eliminate slavery in modern times is an organisation called the International Justice Mission. Uh, and it's worth following their work. Yeah. Well, this is, mm. uh, on the face of it, a society has made progress. Um, even the fact that though we might, I might not own a slave, but I might buy clothes that were made in a sweatshop in a developing country. Um, so that that is a hypocrisy of one one kind. But even even a human society moving to the point where where we where we don't want to admit to owning slaves, that's an improvement on being proud of owning slaves. Uh, so so and it's it's not insignificant. I think it's not surprising that a lot of these social reforms w- came out of Christian societies mm. and concepts like the Sabbath. Uh, definitely inform us about what God's opinion is on the value of people. And so uh, that's good. At the same time, there are still people. So, I mean, the nearest I could think of in Tasmania would be international itinerant fruit pickers as being as being the yeah. sorts of people probably most likely to open to people who don't know English well, people who aren't here for long enough to to get involved in long legal disputes over, you know, mismanagement of their salaries, um, <clears throat> people who are so dependent on their income that they sort of have to work despite any conditions. And I, we do have people and government agencies and there are standards that, that we're meant to uphold. But in terms of probably the most vulnerable people, Similar to some of those categories described in the Sabbath commandment, that was that was the nearest I could come up with. Hmm. Yeah, in in that breakdown on the sort of employment status, I think that you're right, Cam. And um, the there's also more broadly, I mean, the Sabbath commandment references the alien within your midst, and that's that's pretty much direct one for one with the with refugees, um, yeah. displaced people. Um, I mean, here in Australia, we don't have a super glowing track record on our on our history of dealing with people in this sort of category. Yeah. Sad we will, we will have a few more but some might say not as many as we should. Uh yeah. not more after uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. And mm. look these this this is absolutely a group that maps to these categories that we see in Leviticus and Gen- and Exodus and Proverbs um, is the way that you would describe them in in Australia now. Probably the best category for them is people who speak a language other than English at home. L O T E language other than English. Yeah. That's a that's a mm. recognised term for a particular category of people who tend to be disadvantaged. Like you were saying, Cam, when it comes to their understanding of the labor laws, government systems, rights, and and freedoms, um, because they they don't have they don't have proficiency in the language in which most of that information in Australia is transmitted, and I've seen firsthand examples of this. You can 
look at um, Chinese language social media in Australia and see lots and lots of job advertisements and people talking about employment and jobs and things that are way under the minimum wage. Yeah. Mm. Way under the minimum wage, less than half of the minimum wage. But the people, the people who have these jobs are scared that if they, if they confront their employer about it or they go for help on it, their employer will have their visa cancelled and they'll be kicked out of the country. Mm. So an- another proverb, this actually turns up twice. And um, the start is the same, but the, the end is different. Um, so uh, Proverbs 14, 31 Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. And then a very similar proverb in Proverbs 17.5. Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Uh, Hmm. Which is a sort of a different Hmm. end to it. Uh, What then ought we be doing? I am not doing very much to, to... I mean... I rest on the Sabbath, but I, I'm not doing very much to help people. I don't. I don't even know well who the people are, you know, to help. Uh, uh, I am of the opinion that um, that I, inactivity is a part of the Sabbath keeping that is not super relevant to me. I I I'm, need to watch my weight. I don't exercise enough. I spend all day sitting down at desks and. There's a bit of walking around as a teacher, but it's not a lot. Um, Tanner, my son, Tanner, is quite concerned about environmental issues, and that's something we've not touched on so much, but does feature in that, um, you know, concern for the animal kingdom also features um, in the Sabbath commandment. He's he's quite worried about uh, loss of marine life, as we all ought to be, uh, because there's some shocking statistics. And his... uh, his preferred um, activity for a Sabbath is to go and pick up rubbish at the local parks so that it doesn't wash into the waterways and so that it doesn't pollute ocean wildlife. Now, I'm, I do that with a clear conscience, even though it's not rest. I think that that's Sabbath-keeping you know, at its best. But in terms of the human element, I, I don't do a lot. Well, I think that one of the, one of the things we have to recognise if we want to be Sabbath-keepers in this sense is that it's not something that can be relegated to a day a week now i really like the idea of emphasizing it a day a week but when i say it can't be relegated what i mean is that the systems the social structures you think about the difference between the cultures to which the sabbath commandment was first given there in exodus and and deuteronomy compared to our globally interconnected economic machine today you know if you're wanting to make a statement for example uh, about sweatshop underpaid clothing manufacturers in in asia somewhere um saying to yourself i'm, I'm not going to buy fast fashion on sabbaths is is not really going to cut it and it probably means that you're going to have to rephrase you're going to have to phrase it totally differently and you're going to have to say because of my sabbath keeping i am going to make decisions that impact my behavior 100 percent of the time you know, I might, I might choose to wear my shirt more than two times before calling it old and worn out. Um, if that sounds like an exaggeration, no, apparently in a recent survey, quite a lot of, and I, I don't want this to sound sexist, but the survey was reported as quite a lot of young women in Australia 
consider a garment to be old and worn out if it's been worn more than twice. Um, so when we talk fast fashion, that's what we're talking about here. So, so do, do you see what I mean? I guess I'm, yeah, I'm calling I'm calling it out as we can't we the, because these structures are so much more intricate and so much larger, and because the social justice problems, at least as I claimed at the start, were were connected to these issues of structure and system. Um, we're going to have to give it a more concerted, deliberate approach, I think, than being able to say, how can my particular engagement on the seventh day um, make so a big Ken, difference here? If I could make a concrete suggestion that may also, that may also reassure you somewhat, um, one of the things that you could perhaps look at using the Sabbath for is to read up or listen up um, on some of these issues to to people who are affected by them, yeah. um, <clears throat> take take the time that is afforded you by Sabbath to educate. Luke, does yourself. that does that? Because I know that some of these issues are subtle, and we've we've uh, I I don't know. Do, have we talked about the? Um, there's some examples that always come up when you're talking about. Uh, the complexity of helping people. Have we talked about the issue, the the example of the mosquito nets on this podcast? Yes, uh, we did. Uh, people donating so many mosquito nets to a community that the local manufacturers go out of business and then there's no one there mm. to fix them when they break. Um, and then you end up with a worse malaria problem, not a better one. So I know that there's some subtlety and complexity about this. I also know that... Um, that uh, some people don't have the time or the inclination to sort of understand the nitty and gritty and being able to give some money to an institution like ADRA and, and say, uh, I, I don't know what will help, but I'm very proud to support people who, who do know. Uh, I think that that's, you know, a legitimate source for people that are interested in the complexity and the nitty gritty. And what, what, what is the difficult, what can you do that does make a difference? And what, what have we done in the past that hasn't made a difference? And, and what's the surprising element to this? Does does ADRA run any education opportunities or for for people who donate to ADRA who are just curious about about this space? Well, we're talking specifically about ADRA now, which is not yeah. really my intention. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. But- ADRA does uh, work hard to communicate what is done and why it's done to supporters. As do all nonprofit organisations generally. Um, Adra doesn't do a lot of public advocacy or education. Some some organisations do a lot more of that. Um, and in Australia, in particular, I think there's lots of good Indigenous organisations that do that sort of thing, right. and they're absolutely the sort of people to listen to, because um, the general principle, um, and there's a whole bunch of fancy words for it, and a lot of sort of professional terminology, which I will spare you. Um, but the general principle of, of, of uh, humanitarian development or humanitarian work and development work now that is adhered to by, by practically everyone as best practice is essentially one in which the opinion of those who are disadvantaged, who, are, who we are here to serve, is far and away the most important component of our decision-making process in what we do. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, um, 
community led. <laughs> you don't want to be like the three boy scouts who who reported their good deed for the week as having they helped an old lady across the street. And uh, their scout leader said, what, uh, one lady each? They said, oh, no, all three of us helped one lady across the street. And uh, why did it take three of you? Well, she didn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> that That is a very good example of exactly what not to do. So I think lis- listening to the people whose, whose opinions matter on this, which, you know, the way Proverbs would say that is, is uh, you know, doing justice for the poor. Mm. Um, that that's a part of it. You 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 can't do justice for them if you're not listening to them. I think part of the what we mean by social justice, which which is an um, an extra element, although it's, it is included in normal justice, but one of the focuses of social justice is not just ensuring a fair outcome, but in ensuring that people have a voice. In fact, that 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 may be the more important part because a fair outcome in a complex situation may be impossible to deliver, but you can Mm. always deliver to people the situation where they've been shown respect because they were listened to. So that can always be done regardless of outcomes. I think this is the answer to, so at university circles where I move, every single event that ever happens opens with an acknowledgement of country. And I have spent considerable time feeling that these can become extremely formulaic, procedural, trite, meaningless, um, especially when it's really meaningless to stand up and say, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, but I'm not going to change anything about, I'm not going to give them any of this land. The university is going to stay here. The buildings that we've got are going to stay, you know. So I, I've been critical of it in the past, but I actually think that what you just said, Luke, is is why that matters. So, so even mm. when the system is so big and the problem is so deep that you can't actually solve it, like trivially, um, what you can at least do is is acknowledge the perspective and listen to the voice, um, and that 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 is already a really significant step to take. There was a really interesting thing reported in the news. Like a man, <coughs> his father, um, in the sixties or seventies, had found a rock when he was out west on some cattle station that was a a, a, a rock with grooves cut in it which were utilitarian for the Aboriginals for sharpening tools in, but also pointed to landmarks. So it was hmm. a cultural memory as well as a utilitarian oh, that's, thing. That's and a it, brilliant little piece of design. And he, he, me. Yeah, and he liked the look of it, so he took it home. And it was the 60s and you could just do whatever you want. He just threw it in the back of his ute. They pulled it out of the ground and took it home. And um, the son was telling him that he should take it back, should take it back. And the man was a bit embarrassed about it. He's like, well, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it now. But I did, and now it's in my house, and I, I don't. How do I take it back? And anyway, the, the the father, the man who took this rock, died of lung cancer, and his son decided that he was going to take it back, and he um, and give it back to the Aboriginal people, and he walked it back on a hmm. on a sled, and he just invited local Aboriginal people to walk with him, and together they pulled it back, and it was it was a symbolic gesture. You know, um, saying how symbolic of how easy it is to destroy something and how hard it is to restore it um, and just to spend time with the people. And the, the Aboriginal people were just so over the moon thrilled at this gesture. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's social justice. That's uh, e- even more mm. than returning the rock. 
the Aborigin, local Aboriginal, Aboriginal people in that area don't need it to sharpen tools on. Um, they have GPSs and maps, but that's not that's not what it means. Yeah. It's it's about restoring dignity and and um, to, to to a situation. And mm. and when you do say oh, that's really good. When you do say, look, I know six days a week you have to do what I tell you and you have to work, but one day a week. So presumably, presumably that one day a week bought the servants and the slaves and the animals more autonomy. Yeah. So Cam, yeah. I would I would go so far as to suggest that pulling pulling the sled with that rock on it back to its rightful location, were yeah. it done on the Sabbath, would not be breaking the Sabbath. I think I think it would be a great Sabbath activity. And uh and I do think, and we've said this before, but it would be nice to write a list instead of spending so much time on lists of things we can't do on the Sabbath. Uh, to write lists of things that would be a pity not to do on Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, like healing withered hands. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't it be and, awful? And the, grains of wheat. <laughs> Wouldn't it be awful if the Sabbath went by and we didn't have a chance to... I wonder if this might be a... I wonder if this might be an appropriate quote to wrap it up. I came across it on a website uh, for Kilns College, um, which is a college that was started. Uh, well, it's had a history before, but started by that name by a bloke called Ken Witzman, who wrote a book called Pursuing Justice, The Call to Live and Die for Bigger Things. Uh, and on their Facebook page, I came across this quote. How are we proactive pursuers of manifesting God's kingdom? Be investigators. Don't give worship to God because he gave you stuff. Give worship to God by how you use the stuff to break the things that are hmm. wicked. That's how you say you worship. That's a quote yeah. from Adam Thomason. And, and that the, part of the stuff he's given us is time. Time is one of the resources we have to... to uh, to make the world a better place with. Uh, we will leave it there. We're, we're running out of time for this recording. Uh, we hope that you've all enjoyed this discussion. I certainly have um, given me a lot to think about. And um, it, I'm proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist because I think the Sabbath commandment has, has so much of value in it uh, and so much insight into what a meaningful and good and rich and well-lived life looks like. And um, very much enjoyed today's discussion. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to email us on, you can at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think might benefit from it. And uh, please tune in to, it, uh, to our discussion next week.